When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The, the movie is a meditation on obsession yes. and on the virus of obsession and uh, how uh, this sociopath's uh, virus, uh, his, uh, his obsessive compulsive behaviors lead to the destruction, not only of the people that he murders, but also to the people who try to chase him down because that same obsession gets in their head. And whether it's Graysmith or whether it's, you know, Toski or um, whether it's Downey's character, any of them are destroyed by this thing. And um, and you see other people save themselves uh, from the obsession. Uh, yes. Um, Anthony, you know, like Edwards, Anthony, Anthony Edwards. Anthony Edwards. He gets out. Like he just I gotta gets get out. out. Um, I, I got to get out. I can't I can't do this. I, I can't survive this. And that and that moment in the script where and in the movie where. Graysmith packs it all up, throws it into a box, and then a little while later, it all comes out again. Yes. And, you know, that's the end of anything that is remotely, that could be remotely considered a, a normal existence. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle. 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, Elias Codius. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today, the Zodiac himself, Mr. John Carroll Lynch. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. Also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with exclusive Ramen Rant weekly podcasts and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reid are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Now, today, joining me to see if this subject warrants further investigation are, in my opinion, the world's greatest living film critic, the senior film critic at the New York Times, multiple-time Pulitzer Prize nominee, Manola Dargis. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I just come back so I can hear you praise me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if that's the only reason, I'll keep praising you. So you keep coming back. And returning, the screenwriter of Zodiac, Mr. James Vanderbilt, filmmaker and screenwriter of Rounders, The Girlfriend Experience, Ocean's 13, and co-creator and showrunner of Billions, Mr. Brian Koppelman, and of course, our introduction was not the only time we're going to hear from the award-winning actor of stage and screen, a man whose roles include films like Fargo, The Trial of Chicago 7, Gothica, Shutter Island, The Invitation, The Founder, but also Zodiac. That's Mr. John Carroll Lynch. This is the 14th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Cancer Part 2. This is perhaps the most iconic and important scene of the entire film. Mark Ruffalo's Inspector Dave Tosky. Anthony Edwards, Inspector Bill Armstrong, and Elias Codius's Sergeant Jack Mullinax head up to Union Oil in Vallejo in Rodeo, California. Their task? To interview a suspect who suspiciously laid out a plan for the Zodiac's reign of terror exactly almost 11 months 
before it came to pass, and whose ambidextrous writing ability, at the very least, warrants a face-to-face. Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This episode puts these dedicated detectives in front of their most fascinating suspect yet. So the theme of the week, sharing its name from James Foley's 1986 fatalistic family crime drama, is at close range. Let's get to the scene. We left off after Paul Schultz's Sandy Panzarella, whose 70s hair is just the bridge between the Beatles and Martin Riggs's lethal weapon mullet, stares intently at John Hemphill's Don Chaney as they both recall the mounting occurrences of Lee's dubious behaviour. The final straw, Lee being able to write with both hands, and Schultz's terrific pronunciation of ambidextrous, a perfect choice. A white Chevron reads, one day later, Rodeo, California, August 4, 1971. The Bayside Union Oil Factory is pluming steam and smoke from a crowd of smokestacks bunched along the inlet. The faded pastels of silos decorate the hillside as the camera tracks along the foreground freeway route. In the opposite direction, screen right to left, Toski, Armstrong and Mullinex are escorted into a break room. Pastel green on the outer walls and black chicken wire windows give the feeling that it's a cage. Perhaps suitably, there's a sign that says, be careful, safety first. The talent bursting from Ruffalo, Codius and Armstrong as they briefly strategize here feels like watching like Federer stroll onto a court in his prime. There's an unshakable aptitude, this implicit confidence, that they're more than up to the task of this scene, and then from the outset, their characters are up to this encounter. There's no false bluster, just a nomination that Armstrong spoke to the eyewitnesses, and therefore he should lead, and they'll back him up. So how do you guys want to do this? Well, Bill talked to the informant, two leads we follow. It's okay by me. We cut to a vertical track down, seeing John Carroll Lynch for the first time as Lee, accompanied by the repetitive thumping thrum of machinery. And we check our pulse. Every time I watch this scene, I can feel my pulse quicken. There's a fantastic shot of the three police officers watching Lee walk their route into the lunchroom. And the composure and cool of every man just cracks. It's almost as if to say, holy shit, this is the guy. It's here you have to take a moment to marvel at the costume choices. Toski, a deliberate form-fitting suit with a thick eye-catching tie. Armstrong, an off-the-rack suit from a looser fit and the shapelessness of the jacket and pants. And yet city detectives have a look that they're required to maintain. And then we have the down-to-earth Mullinax, whose tweed jacket looks like it hangs on the back of his office chair for occasions such as this. The mustard colour of his shirt is the colour of the day. And Mullinax essentially blends with the paint job of the brick walls and the shiny plastic chairs. As this trio stance alongside yellow bricks it's hard to not think of the wizard of oz a tin man a lion and a scarecrow preparing for a visitor that may as well be from another world here's john carroll lynch on getting the role and what it was like preparing for the role of arthur Lee Allen. the key to uh, the key to approaching any character is getting the job 
you know, <laughs> that's the primary thing you've got to do is get the job. And so it starts in the audition process. Lorraine, who is uh, David's casting director, called me in for the part and I had the scenes to read and I don't think I had the full script uh, for the for the show, but I think I think very soon after the first reading, I did have that. Uh, I I went into their offices, into David's offices, and uh, read for the part, and then got a, another uh, callback with with uh, David himself uh, and Larray, and um, and we chatted about the character then, and and he was uh, you won't be surprised to hear methodically prepared for uh, for the movie uh, in, a, in a holistic, fully holistic and obsessive way. And when I read the full script, uh, which I don't think was, as I said, very either very soon after my audition. So it starts with that um, and the conversation that I had with David about the character and also the materials that I was given. Um, uh, unlike uh, most things you get to do, um, uh, he had a historian on staff and um, wow. and so he um, showed me the timeline of the various spots that the murders took place uh, the various attacks that were ascribed to the zodiac and where arthur lee allen was at any given time and he was in geographic distance for all of them and he was a likely candidate for the you know for a suspect and um, and his behavior in the interview, um, and also his behavior in other interviews that I saw, was so chillingly um, presentational as human. Um, it was some. It was like watching somebody who um, was acting the part of a human being. <laughs> yes. And um, and uh, I could never fully get to the place that Arthur Lee Allen had in those moments in some of the later interviews particularly when uh, when they were closing in on potentially indicting him and they had gotten a search warrant and found pipe bombs in his in his basement and uh, you see him kind of getting ready to kind of weep i mean he's just so put upon it's just he's a victim such a victim of the system and and the the detective is letting him run for a while and he goes yeah but uh, arthur what was with the pipe bombs that we found <laughs> And um, and you watch this victim thing just completely drain away in a matter of a second. And all of it's gone. No residual sense of the emotion being there at all. And, um, and that is a turn in terms of human behavior that's, you know, uh, uh, chillingly difficult to, to perform. Um, you know, I... I you know, all of, all of the people who act for a living, they at, at some in some form or another are are connecting to their emotional life and presenting it. And so, you you know, you work on those skills. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. And I've never seen anything like it in terms of it costing nothing, not a shred of energy. And he was as cold as ice the very next minute, without anger. Nothing. You as an actor are so dedicated and you've got to get yourself into scenarios where you can create the conditions for you to do this easily. And then just like any level of performance, that must be like 
uh, you know, you come home, you know, I think some people go to work and they do a presentation or they're a teacher or whatever. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're on in a sense that you're mm -hmm. on as an actor performing their role and then they come home and they're exhausted. But to think of him just like, and I want to give full credit to you in that wonderful interrogation scene, you have a moment that's like what you're describing when Tosky goes, but that, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah. After, you were fired from the school for abusing children and you... I tr I tried desperately to get to <laughs> well, look, the quality of Alan's of Alan's work in that in that interrogation. I could never fully I could never fully reach the level of emotional connection that he seemed to have, followed by no emotional connection, like you unplugged a light. <laughs> yes. And um, and uh, while I tried, I mean, I did my best to create that response. It was in the text and and everything. You know, I did the best I could. Um, uh, I, I'm grateful. I don't have that level of disconnection. Uh, you know, I'm grateful as a person that I don't, I can't fully um, disengage from emotional life uh, and to to be as um, uh, as almost um, inhuman in that moment. That's that's the only moment that he appeared inhuman yes. in the in, in the interviews. And um, and along with those moments, there were there were fully engaged moments of what seemed to be perfectly human behavior. Yes. And um, and then you know um, when we were when we were getting ready to do the piece when I had gotten the part, and uh, I was talking to David and I don't know if it was that that interview or another one. He said, "I need you to play this as if he's not guilty." Yes. And. Um, and uh, I was, I was, I cocked my head at that. And then I started to work on it. I came to a place where I could believe that he wasn't guilty of these murders. And, and it's a grotesque um, defense. Um, Arthur Lee Allen was arrested for a child molestation and um, he was, he was in prison for that. And um, society has certain norms that we've all been taught uh, since childhood that uh, is the right thing to do you know yes. and we're very i mean these things are very strongly inlaid mm. in us and they go they're good and bad you know gender roles um uh, what we what people are consi considered to be appropriate mm. um, sexual relationships um you know sex outside marriage um and it goes on and on and on and one of the strongest ones Rightly so. Uh, one of the strongest injunctions is you don't have sex with children. Yeah. And um, to rub through, to have a predilection that rubs through that particular social um, taboo uh, to the point where you act on it um, is so difficult to work your way through. Um, it's, it's difficult to imagine you'd have room for another. That you'd go, oh yeah, you know, I, I wasn't, it turns out I really didn't want to uh, have sex with children. What I wanted to do was kill people. Yes. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't see that as a, as a normal path. And certainly child molesters as a group uh, don't, um, don't end up murdering people. Um, and um, one of the reasons why is because the, the thing they're most interested in, sadly, is control. Yeah. You know control over the intimacy they're they're allowing and 
they choose vulnerable, uh, the most vulnerable among us to maintain a sense of complete control. And um, Zodiac's um, behavior in those murder scenes, would, there was a lot of risk taken on by, yes. the, by, by him and, and also a, a, a really excellent skill set, I hate to say. Yeah. He, he possessed certain skills. <laughs> that was a dead eye shot with a pistol and he was doing it with, at night. At night with a flashlight taped to the pistol. Yeah. And he was he shot somebody from 25 feet away with a pistol. That's that's and and now all the lies that movies shocking. have told us. Oh yeah, all the lies that movies have told us is that that's very easy, but I think absolutely it, it not. Is, it is absolutely not. No, <laughs> and I've participated in scenes where I have, you know, like wantonly just raised a pistol and shot somebody. I've pretended to kill a lot of people. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I remember a scene I did in Carnival where, you know, he just comes out of the bathroom firing of, you know, yes. a, a 1925, 45 caliber revolver, a service pistol uh, from, you know, 30 feet away and hits somebody right in the chest. And you're like, well, no, <laughs> you're not doing that on the move. No. But, but, but the Zodiac hit his targets while moving at night with a pistol from a distance and did it with with you know, with a light source taped to his gun that's somebody who's practiced a lot yeah that. I'm Inspector Bill Armstrong, this is Inspector Dave Toski and Sergeant Jack Mullinax. We're investigating the Zodiac murders in San Francisco and Vallejo. Please sit down. The informant notified us that you made certain statements 11 months prior to the first Zodiac murder. If they're true, they're quite incriminating. Do you recall having any such conversation? No. Have you ever read or heard anything about the Zodiac? When it was first in the paper, but I didn't follow it after those first reports. Why not? Too morbid. I told all this to the other officer. Which other officer? From Vallejo. Do you remember his name? No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? You don't ride with the devil in Zodiac. That rare American movie that doesn't turn murder into kicks. With cool intelligence, David Fincher's masterly opus tracks the years-long effort by several detectives and newspaper men, including Robert Graysmith, who wrote the book on which the movie is based, to find the killer, the self-anointed Zodiac, who committed a string of murders in Northern California starting in the late 60s and perhaps continuing into the early 70s. Zodiac is about an investigation, and is itself an investigation. As is always the case with Mr. Fincher's movies, it is also about extreme human behavior and an example of the same. Extremes possess the murderer and those who chase him. Men whose desire to solve killings burns away large swathes of their words. I need to know, Graysmith, Jake Gyllenhaal tells his wife, whom he eventually drives away with his compulsive pursuit. That need 
is ultimately frustrated. The Zodiac Killer remains uncaught and officially unnamed, which gives the movie a strange pathos. In the end, there is no confession of guilt or triumphantly condemned prisoner, no trial or justice. All that remains is the search and the filmmaking. That near-definitive examination of Zodiac and the interrogation scene called Building Suspense Along the Trail of an Invisible Man is written by none other than my next guest, Manola Dargis. We have a broad and roaming conversation that expands upon the themes of her iconic piece to talk about how Zodiac is in microcosm this scene. Oddly, I wanted to start with, I think everyone who writes about movies and thinks about movies, they they have these different touchstones for them. You know, they read something by someone, uh, really affected how they, they looked, you know, how they approached their own work. And for me, uh, it was very casual. I was reading um, New York Magazine uh, when John Leonard uh, was a critic, he was mainly a literary critic, but he also was a longtime television critic. And he was writing about a show I really liked, the American um, police show called Homicide. And he said, and I, I wish I had pulled it up and I'm sorry I didn't. He said something to the effect of that he'd learned more about men and human behavior in just these interrogation scenes in Homicide than he had in, you know, you know whatever, you know, whatever he was saying. I don't think he was actually saying he'd learn more than like reading philosophy, but how much he had learned just from this very simple setup of a few people in one room. And I was very, very struck with, by that at the time. Yes. And I don't think I really understood how brilliant an observation that is. <laughs> I am very much, as a movie person, I am obviously very interested in visuals. And I think, if anything, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to people who have a kind of very strong visual style, vis- visual signatures. Um, and that's often, you know, the, the filmmakers who I kind of, rev- you know, revere will have these very strong visual s- signature. I think that Fincher, whose work I've greatly liked since the very beginning, since his, his much despised Aliens movie, um, you know, he was someone who obviously has a very, he's telling stories through visuals. And yet, here we are in this movie. This movie is, you know, comes very close to three hours and it's, you know, the director's cut squeaks a little closer. <laughs> a lot of scenes of people talking. It's a lot of scenes of men in various kinds of rooms talking. And then we get to this room and it just feels like everything is there and that it is one of the most tense scenes I could imagine. And how Fincher is able to create tension through just a series of kind of the relay of, of looks, mm. you know? The, the dialogue is really great, you know? And Fincher does not always have really great scripts, unfortunately. This is a really, really uh, good script and it's very, it's very minimal, but it's kind of minimalist here. This is really simply three cops, three detectives talking to someone who may or may not be who they think it is. Um, and you're on edge. And I was rewatching it. I rewatched it a couple times before before we started talking. It's very, you know, if you break it down, break it down just in terms of what actually happens. It's super, super simple, right? Yes. You know. The detectives go into the room. <laughs> they, 
they, they stand there waiting. Then uh, Alan is brought into the room by another man. The briefest moment is, who is going to talk? Like, it's very cordial. Who, who is going to do the speaking? Well, okay. Well, Armstrong will do the speaking and we'll both lead. Uh, we'll, both, we'll both support. Okay. Right. But in okay. basic terms, it's basically men enter a room. Yes. They sit down in a room. They talk and then they leave. <laughs> yes. You know, and your heart is just thudding. Because if we replay it again, it's, of course, how Fincher tells this story. Yes. You know the it's the visuals are very very good i mean i it was it was funny i was just i remember when i reviewed the movie i was so struck by the color yellow throughout you know yes. and how yellow kind of functions uh you know i don't think what, what does yellow mean you know as a warning sign you know it's not red but it's not green it's yellow this is the first time i've ever done this on a podcast manola but i really i i've in the co- time of COVID, i've tried to set my studio podcasting because there's so many podcasts to try and make it as good as I possibly can. And I made a choice on some chairs for guests when I am ever allowed to have some such guests in my house again to talk face to face rather than a Zoom call. And you're never going to believe that when I was watching the scene again and again, I just I discovered that I have the very same chairs that I I literally this movie has been a a brain worm and has like taken my decor taste. I have two of those chairs in my office right now and i'm like oh my god i literally have the chairs from the interrogation scene in my office which is kind of you know for people to be interrogated on i suppose if uh, if they come in and do that yeah, so wild yellow chairs that they sit <laughs> the yellow is there's also a really important yellow in the newsroom that the we newsroom. have characters yeah. a yellow that of course also makes me think of all the president's men i'm just saying i'm just yeah. i'm just closing the circle here so. closing the circle <laughs> The sound design is extremely important in this scene. I mean, I think it always is with Fincher, you know, yeah. but I think that I, I often think about his visuals and he was working with the Viper digital camera. It was a very big deal at the time. It was very cutting edge. Um, but that someone could actually make just a scene of, you know, four men in a room turn into your, you know, you feel like your heart is throbbing much like the, the sound of the machinery that basically introduces our suspect, you know, which is very intense, yes. is really quite something. And I think that to be able to do that is just on, a, on another level. Not not everyone can do it. I mean, Scorsese is obviously someone, can, someone who can, you know, just to have, I mean, Scorsese does a lot with the camera and of course like one of the most virtuosic uh, scenes in contemporary cinema is the is the long walk into you know Goodfellow you know we're very used to like that's the you know that we think of that maybe even as like become the signature but I actually often think it's it's just how different how you shoot people around a, a dinner table or an interrogation room that you can make it come alive through camera angle through editing, through those choices, and of course your your um, actors is really important. And I think one of the things about Fincher also, because he's such a kind of visual fetishist, you know, in, in a way, and we fetishize his fetishism, um, <laughs> that he's very very good with the actors, and they're yes. all they're all very very good here. No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive, that I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want. 
That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur. Also, that day when I came home, my neighbor saw me. It was around four, but I forgot to tell the other officer that. Neighbor's name? Bill White. He died a week or so afterwards. Heart attack, so I didn't think to call to follow up. Here's John Carroll Lynch taking us to what it was like to perform the scene on the day with Anthony Edwards, Mark Ruffalo, and Elias Cuddy's. There were no first aid jitters, which was nice about the filming of it. Uh, we drove down to Industry, I believe was the city. We were in the city of Industry um, in an old cookie factory, I think, or something like that. And um, the other actor, by the way, Marty Lodge, who played my supervisor, who brought, yes. brought us in, Marty and I knew each other from Washington, D.C. He's a He has been in his life and may be there now. I don't know where he is now, but he was kind of a, a foundational member of the D.C. theater community. So I knew him from back in the day when I was in school. So so it was nice that he was there. So um, we we started the scene and um, and you knew from from his reputation that Fincher was going to be exact, exacting and that there were going to be, you know, many, many takes. So you had a preparation for that in terms of um, reputation. Yeah. And um, I, I don't think I had met any of those guys before. Um, I had worked on the same lot with Anthony Edwards while he was on ER. I was on uh, Drew Carey, but I don't think I'd met him. I met other people on that, um, on that show, but not him. It was the first day that I met Mark. I've worked with him subsequently a couple times since. Yeah. So, um, and Elias is a... There are very few people who are as underrated as Elias Kateas. I would say that the thing about Elias Kateas is um, you have to work hard to remember his name because when you watch him work, he is whoever he says he is during the time. And then you have to go, who was was that fucking guy? What is that guy's name? I mean, I fucking love that guy. What is his fucking name? And then you have to go back and look for it. You know, yes. uh, John Ortiz is like that. Oh, I John. saw John Ortiz in a half a dozen things. And I was like, God, I love that guy. God, what is that fucking guy's name? <laughs> and, and you're like, I, is it uh, Jose Yero? Like, like, no, I was like, what the fuck is that guy's name? And then I finally, I finally was like, I went to the IMDP page and I just said it to myself six times in a row. That's John Ortiz. 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 And then the next time I saw him, I went, that's John that's Ortiz. John Ortiz. <laughs> I mean, he's just, he's, he has the gift of creating that reality for you right in front of your eyes and you don't think of anything else. And Elias is like that. So there we were, uh, and we sat down, we read it. Uh, the, the lighting was universal. So it was, it was a, it was a lighting package that didn't need to be changed. Only the camera positions were going to need to be changed. They could be changed to any place in the room. The framing was, uh, was quite precise as all of his framing is. Mm -hmm. And you knew you'd have time because you were going to get a bunch of takes. So you knew you were in a marathon, not a sprint. And, um, and, and then the day proceeded and the work proceeded and we went from fairly wide shots as you do into more coverage shots. And, and then we got into the close-ups and, uh, we didn't finish our day. So we came back the next day and finished in the half day and, and, uh, we finished the scene uh, and I'll go back through it, but we finished the scene 
And the four of us uh, stood up and there was a quiet moment. We shook each other's hands and thanked each other for the, for the days. And then all of us were like, I mean, this was really fun, right? I mean, <laughs> we're all in agreement that this was like an, like a super fun day, super fun set of days, right? Everybody was like, yeah, this was just amazing. Like everybody, every little note that was given, every little thought that was given to one actor fluttered its way through the three other actors. It was like sitting with a jazz combo and like, you know, you're, you know, you, I don't play music, but I watch jazz, jazz combos and you see like the bass player hear what the piano player is doing and you, you feel the change in the music and that was how it was and and uh, to be with uh, to play with Elias Kateas um and I don't know hundreds of times hundreds of yeah. times to say you know the the blood from my that was in my trunk was uh, the chickens I killed <laughs> uh, whatever that line was and every single time Elias had never heard it before yeah every single time he went Wait, what? And you just were like, every time it had a little slightly different nuance, but every single time it was, oh, this is a totally, now now we're into something. Up till now, there was nothing. This guy was creepy, but you know, who isn't? But now it's like, oh, now where do we go? And every time he said it, every time he did it a little differently, he watched it riffle through all of us. And every time David said something that changed the energy, uh, which he gives fantastic acting notes, really, really substantive, on the mark, um, very particular acting notes. Every time anybody got one, you just saw it ripple through. Mm. I don't remember him ever taking anybody away to talk to them individually. Um, so the scene was an ensemble scene and it was treated as an ensemble scene. And even in people's individual coverages, there was never a secret between the director that was withheld from the other actors. Yes. What difference does that make? Well, it, what, what made it is, was it, there was an opportunity for all of us to play the same moment together. Now that doesn't always help and it doesn't always work. But with those four actors, the three of us, and with Marty, Marty in, in the limited time he was able to play with us, everybody changed it was just it was like being on the widest dance floor possible you know there you could go anywhere and and everybody would follow he died a week or so afterwards heart attack so i didn't think to call to follow up the knives i had in my car with the blood on them that blood came from a chicken that i killed for dinner I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill Solomon called the other officer on me. Well, we'll be checking in on that. Uh, well, let me ask you something else. Were you ever in Southern California at any time in 1966? Is this about the Riverside killing? Yes. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I like the auto races. In the coverage, there's a shot that I can't get over and it's part of your line delivery where you move your leg, you cross your legs mm. and Fincher tracks Elias Codius's face watching you cross your legs. 
And I just can't get over it, John. I just look at it. I look at your physicality and your movement and the tension of the scene, him looking at you, and that same shock registers in his confusion. Like, this guy's getting comfortable in front yes. of me. And yes. I just think there's, there's these little... Um, there's and, also it, a... It from I watched uh, that came from the I mean it was in the it was in the script and and also David was insistent on on the gesture yes but it was also in the um, interrogation videotape that I had mm. and uh, when he did it there was a, as as there was through my body too um, uh, you know um, Arthur presents uh, presented in his life and presents. Uh, I, I certainly tried to help that along. He presents as very, you know, in, in the modern parlance, as very cis, mm. um, very um, masculine. When he crossed his legs, there was this kind of shudder of feminine energy that went through his body, very shocking. Like, like kind of like you recognize there was all this kind of presentation going on. Mm. In the interrogation and so when when the script called for it and when david wanted it and uh, i i really felt like that was the that was that not only that he was getting comfortable but that it was he's not who we think he, he he's he is absolutely not who he's presenting himself to be no. yet the presentation is fully full and complete so uh, I, I mean it should be like a it should be a sudden crack like what's a what's a great example of it like there there are times where um you get to see actors acting and then they'll be in the middle of something and they'll you'll see it in outtakes or something will happen and they'll just crack through to some other energy yes and that was what it was like only what opened up was discomforting to see uncomfortable to watch and that's what I, you know, that's what I tried to embody in that was not just that he was getting more relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, he, that he suddenly realized that they weren't as close as he thought they might be. Yes. But also that the person that he is, you see the slim, you see where the costume doesn't quite fit. Yeah. And I, I think you put it so perfectly of like, this is a person performing what humanity is. <laughs> yes. And yes, he's performing the role of Arthur Lee Allen. Yes. Such yeah. a... Wow. In a very naturalistic... In a very naturalistic <laughs> uh, uh, aesthetic. He's, he's definitely uh, he's definitely a post-Brando uh, post yeah, naturalist. Was, uh, there's nothing, perform say, yes, no, yes, nothing there's theatrical no, about it. <laughs> there's no operatic. He's not in the Johnny Depp school of acting. He's definitely... Right. No, he's definitely following the, you know, he's a Lee Strasberg guy, no doubt. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous. No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is that's a horrible thing to say. So you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? Uh, John Carroll Lynch responding to the detective's 
who are asking him questions. But there is also this, this little thing that starts happening where their gazes start zigzagging, the looks that they start giving each other. And, and Ruffalo's looks are really, really important. They're very punctuating, you know? So yes. there comes a point where John Carroll Lynch just like brings up these, the, the bloody knives that he had, you know? <laughs> And it's horrible to, I mean, and we laugh because, but it's very. There's no other response because it's so out of left field. And those bloody knives that were in my car, it's like, what? Like they all literally go, what? Easy moments. And I think Fincher is very good here where you're, you're really upset. You're really nervous. There's a lot of anxiety and it's almost like this weird kind of impolite joke, you know? And you're just like, am I supposed to laugh or what? And you see them all react, but it's really Ruffalo's look where it's almost, he kind of is looking around like, wait, what, what was that? And I think that he's kind of like mirroring our own in a way. I think that he is, a, at least in this scene, it's that like, wait, what in the hell was that? <laughs> he's not doing the kind of, he's not pressing the investigation along. He's not kind of pushing it along at that point. He's reacting very much like us. And I think that there's something really, you know, kind of, Filmmakers like to do this, these self-reflexive moments where, you know, the audience, you know, we kind of see this kind of cinematic thing happening on screen. And there is very much where, you know, the detectives are Lynch's audience at that, at that moment, you know, where they are waiting for him to give a show and he responds by giving them quite the show. And it's a really beautiful i mean lynch has a beautiful voice and he does some very beautiful kind of silky vote silky sinister vocalizations here that are yes. really amazing and uh, there's a great moment also you talk about the the correspondences of the call and responses between the questions there's a moment that Elias codius which this is one thing that got me this time watching it with with you in preparation for this minute is there's a moment where John Carroll Lynch puts his legs together like he's getting comfortable. Like so for, and he he raises his leg and he crosses his legs and you literally chart this beautiful camera movement that comes almost from the floor up to Elias Codius's face which is puzzled like hold on oh, oh, oh I'm sorry you're getting comfortable for this chat like it's this really strange moment but it's that it that almost starts this uh sort of like domino effect of correspondences leading up to our great double take moment of like, oh, and forget the bloody knives in my car, but it like starts with he's getting relaxed, he's putting on a show and the camera then, the, the setup, it's it's almost like after all this stillness and this very, you know, very sort of programmed understanding, like you said, like you're keeping it very much in the character and the behavior of these people. You don't want to put too much showiness on it. There's a couple of really then delicate, like, oh, here's a close-up of each of these guys. Something is dawning on them as this guy is talking. It's 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 a beautiful tension. And then it just all starts happening and you're like, whoa, this thing is accelerating. Well, there's, there's a few things. One, um, there's a shot where he crosses his leg. Yes. And he does it, but it's, and he's crossing his leg not in the way where you cross your ankle over your knee. He crosses his legs um, like, you know, it's often considered more of a feminine, though I don't believe, you know, I'm yeah. just saying in gender terms. Yeah. It's very interesting. 
And there's this weird shot where his his boot, you know, his he has a boot, a short work, work boot, is kind of looming in the scene. And we get uh, Elias Casas looking at it, you know, where there's this weird where he's looking at. And that's really important because when John Carroll Lynch is first coming down the hallway and there's that incredible mechanical, it's like some sort of weird mechanical heart, right? It's the pulse. Yes. Boom, and boom, it's like boom. the monster is coming. <laughs> John Carroll Lynch also gives the character a kind of slight a hitch, almost a kind of limp. Yes. And Fincher, you see him and the camera's kind of low and then it, and it, kind of, it just has a slight pan down to his feet. Yes. It's very weird and disturbing. And, you know, when we think about the, the Zodiac as this question mark, as this kind of fugitive figure that we have not quite seen, but seen disguised, it's a kind of great moment of, I felt like this is the monster coming to us. <laughs> yes. So, and so I think there's that kind of the, 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 I think those two shots of his feet are definitely in play in yes. terms of the character. Um, but I think the there's just it's interesting the way that Fincher uses these close-ups because he does have these direct close-ups that aren't over the shoulder shots, you know. They're, and they're, again, they have this kind of very um, uh, they create this kind of stress, you know, where each man, each of the detectives, and including actually Lynch, that's right, are isolated in the frame, you know. And it's it's a very the first, I think that word stress is so perfect because the first one that happens on Elias Curtis's face is stressful because it's like a, a realization, but you're like right in his face and you go, oh, and then bang on Edwards and then on, uh, and then on Ruffalo and yeah. the you sort of acclimatize to the rhythm. The beating heart is there. This guy's lumber up the hallway is there, all this like rhythmic stuff. But that one of the, the flash, you realize that you're, you're occupying their real intimate stress, each of them, and they're yes. all wearing it differently. Like Elias uh, uh, Codis's character is a bit more naked with it, yes. uh, but Edwards is so much more composed. And then yes. Tosky does this lean. Like there's just something that Ruffalo gets about Tosky's. I don't know whether it's like that confidence that happens and, and it happens in Homicide in spades, but it's like that confidence of an interrogator, like, oh, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is what's happening. This yeah. is who we have. Yes. So there's this kind of, the, the way that Fincher uses these close-ups are, there's the stress of the, the characters are undergoing, but it's also just, I feel like there's a kind of nakedness that, you know, so much of this is about people and the limits of knowledge, you yes. know, that's what the movie is about and you have in an interrogation you're trying to find out something from this person and so you know usually in a in a, in a show like homicide or law and order or you know we can go down the line yeah. there is a kind of <coughs> assumption that most of the time 90 percent of the time the detectives will find out you know what in fact there's this netflix show that i've watched which is uh, set in different countries where it basically all takes place in an interrogation room, yeah. right? Um, criminal. And, and, but there is this kind of assumption that as we keep asking our questions, you know, that, that we will be rewarded with the answers. And one of the <laughs> things about this movie is it says no. no. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but you know, there's a kind of like each face is expecting, hoping, wanting, you know, more knowledge, more answers, something. And the way that Lynch plays it, again, with this kind of silky, sinister quality is very unsettling because he's, you know, the scene is too short for him to be broken, but you also get the sense that he probably never could be broken. You know, yes. that there is this, I mean, he's big, he looms over the other men, even when he's sitting, which is a really kind of interesting thing. And then there's that great question where, this great moment where he says to them, you know, I, he says, I'm not the Zodiac. And then he says, and even if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. <laughs> It's maybe my favorite line in the whole movie, like in a movie that doesn't necessarily have lines of dialogue that ring out, but like, I'm yeah. certainly not the Zodiac Killer, but I wouldn't tell you if I was. And it's like, that's not what you say if you're innocent. I mean, just in, like, it just, maybe, maybe we're just a, a programmed to kind of know that now, but. Well, I think it's also, it's, un- I mean, it's interesting because I think watching it the first time, I was just very uncomfortable and also very preoccupied with just watching it. But I think that when you watch the whole movie and you know what happens, it also takes on this kind of eeriness because, yes. you know, bad things happen and sometimes bad people are not punished for those bad things, you know, and that no matter how much you can keep going for almost three hours of movie time, yeah. you know, that you will have this kind of unknowable evil, you know, that you have these men who are just constantly going at it and trying to figure it out and they're turning around for years. I mean, it's just till they, till you know, they're driven. Be, I mean, they just seem to lose it, you know, spiraling into alcoholism. I mean, it's just, and, and there's something, and it's interesting because I, I did not know that about the about how Fincher directed Lynch to play that because it, what's interesting about about how Lynch delivers it is that it sounds very very uh, phony initially. Yes. It's got this very he's giving it this quality of like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Like this, <laughs> it's got this kind of very I think intentional artificiality. Quality, yes. you know, this, artificial quality that you can hear this kind of almost I can't say brittle because that really goes against how his voice sounds but you're just it feels like he's you know lying to them so for the fact the fact that he actually was told to deliver it as if he's innocent makes the character seem even more of a sociopath yeah he's so much phony and I think the brittleness is to the point is when he's putting up that artifice He's less like the John Carroll Lynch that we know. As soon as he settles into that voice, and yeah. his voice is so undeniable. Yeah. And once he starts talking in that, and the the proper register of the vocal cords come back, uh, other than that sort of artificial, I think your artificiality is right because some people it's like, oh, have you got any plans this weekend? And you, it's someone you maybe don't want to hang out with. So you go, oh, this weekend, this weekend. <laughs> Let me think. I, uh, I'm not sure. And your voice hits that high <laughs> register. Yeah. It's. I feel like that is the beginning yes. of the conversation. And once they put upon him and he's sort of overwhelmed by facts, it then starts to, it's almost like it starts to filter. The, the filter that he had is starts to disappear. And then again, that realization moment of like, 
everything now is mounted to a point that even what I'm hearing them ask me makes me sound like I'm guilty, even if I believe that I'm not. And in this moment, he's trying to register that he's not. And just, it's just a, it's an unforgettable scene. It's like the scene in the movie that almost like makes your knees buckle because you go and, and later on in the film, you get the Charles Fleischer scene and there's all these other like kind of these other threads and tendrils and possibilities that also make you really uncomfortable. And you can see and you register the madness that these guys feel later in their lives because it's this unanswerable, it's forever the unanswerable. You know, it's funny though. I think it's interesting about, again, how the scene is structured because, you know, I think Fincher is a very kind of no fat director. I don't believe that there's anything. I think that everything that he's showing you is supposed, is supposed to be there. And yeah. so then, you know, the scene again opens with these detectives being walked in and it's a, a, it's a, kind of, it's a long shot. So you can see their full bodies. And they're being led by someone who works at the factory and they walk in and there is that sign of course the danger sign that's right yes. there which is funny um there's a little warning sign you know it's like danger danger here it comes. <laughs> um, and there's a kind of weird grill or something there too uh with the windows some sort of it's a weird strange you know it's almost could be like prison bars or whatever um and so that's the beginning and then the scene though if i Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the scene end with him leaving, with Lynch's character walking out, and we're looking still at the detectives through the through the glass window, through the bars, through the through bars. The bar. It's it's like a it's like a lattice of metal, yeah. and right. we're lo- he's we're looking at him through the lattice. He's looking back at the detectives through the lattice, yeah, lum- exactly. and he's lumbering along. And Tosk right. is the only one standing, hands on hips, watching him, trying to maintain eye contact as he walks out. And Carol Lynch is breaking eye contact. He's sort of glancing back in and lumbering along. But I just think, you know, again, this is not to be, not to sound like too, sound too ridiculous, but I think it's important that we had seen the detectives walking in and the scene actually ends with him walking out. You know, yes. there's a certain kind of symbolism even to like who gets to who starts the scene is our yes. detective, but yes. who that scene and who is on the outside and they're kind of stuck in the room and they will remain in that kind of symbolic interrogation right, for the rest of the movie because they will never fully be able to crack this case. So that, that to me is very, there's a really neat symmetry that, that Fincher sets up, visual symmetry, that I think is also... When someone is working visually to make the meaning of the narrative and deepen it, is just you know this is this is why we do podcasts like this. <laughs> so. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I like the auto races. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous. No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is, that is horrible. That is that's a horrible thing to say. So you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. 
Ah, that, that, that's a nice watch. Thank you. May I see it? May I see it? Where'd you get it? It's a Christmas gift from my mother two years ago. That's very sweet. So tell me something, Arthur. You don't remember anyone you might have had a conversation with regarding the Zodiac? Maybe uh, Ted Kidder of Fell Tucker uh, at Vallejo Recreation. But I couldn't be positive. I used to work there one. Oh. The most dangerous game. What? The most dangerous game. That's why you're here, isn't it? It was my favorite book in high school. It's about this man who waits for people to get shipwrecked on his island. Because he was tired of hunting animals, he hunted the people for the challenge. And man is the most dangerous animal of all? That's the whole point of the story. Great book. Or at least that's what I told Phil. <laughs> There you go. Sure. And for the final word on this episode, here's Brian Koppelman talking about the knives in the car revelation. And finally, James Vanderbilt, that the truth of this interview is actually stranger than fiction. I mean, when Lee talks about the knives in the car, that... Uh I have said, I, 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 I find myself laughing just in the middle of the day. And I'm thinking about that line. I'm thinking if like there was a blood from a chicken. It's like, what? And he knows what he's doing. You know, it's a masterful scene. And of course, I'm sure you've done this. I mean, I've looked up Lee so many times because Mm. the performance is so incredibly great. Right. I mean, he was just, uh, I mean, he, I work. I got to work work with him on billions, and he is just, uh, just such an incredible pro. And Merrill Lynch, and what he does as Lee, the way he's calculating how good these cops are, because at first he does come in and puts on a bashful air. Mm. And he has that one moment where he says one thing I certainly wouldn't tell you, but then it resets again, right? That could have ended the scene. Yeah. If I was the Zodiac, I certainly wouldn't tell you. And then the scene goes on for like five more minutes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he, he, he swings back and forth between wanting to get let off the hook and wanting them to know he's the Zodiac. And because whether the world thinks it's Lee, I mean, I think Fincher, in the movies decided that it's Lee. Well, John, I mean, John Carroll Lynch, especially, I think just does such an amazing job with it because he plays it, so, he's so angry. Like the whole scene behind it, he's so furious that these people have shown up yes. where he works and that he's probably gonna lose his job. You know yes. what I mean? There's a, there's a sort of moment and he's so convinced he's smarter than all of them. Mm. Um, and he conveys all of that you know, in a scene that that has to, I mean, the thing about that scene that's so crazy to me is that it's, you know, it's 
verbatim from the police reports, you know, and we had to sort of put it together in the right way. But what he's saying, what he actually said to the police was so incredible. It's the worst things you could, I mean, it's like <laughs> one humdinger after another, after another. And so for John to come in and play it so well and play it believably that, that a human being would actually say these things <laughs> to the police and be, he's able to be very scary and very pathetic at the same time, which I, I don't know how you achieve, but he does it. Great book. Or at least that's what I told Phil. There you go. Thanks for your time. I'm willing to help in any way possible. I look forward to the day when police officers are no longer referred to as pigs. Thanks. We'll be in touch. That concludes episode 14 of Zodiac Chronicle, Cancer, Part 2. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes. And if you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the 1-8 Minute Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by The Duff, Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicles stickers and pins were designed by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Buy one, why don't you? Huge thanks to Manola Dargis, obviously John Carroll Lynch, James Vanderbilt once again, and Mr. Brian Koppelman. But until next time. Good. Bye. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.